Hi, my name is Ajne Dawkins, and if I had to choose a church girl representative, it would be Whitney Houston. I'm Brittany Rogers, and I'm secretly a sucker for a good romantic comedy. Like, I know they're corny and predictable, but I think that's why I like them. (laughs) And we are your co-hosts of Versus Podcast. The podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Today, we have the joy of interviewing Mia S. Willis, an amazing poet. But before we hop into their interview best, something that I'm reflecting on with Mia's work is the presence of the political and ethics and how they all coincide or or their praxis rather to what Mia writes and furthermore Mia's lived experience. And it makes me wonder what's an incident that has shifted your politics or ethics? I think I'm going to go back to my little introduction fact, thinking about Whitney Houston, mm-hmm. watching the way she was treated by the public while she was alive, the way she was mocked for being someone who wrestles with addiction. And it was not like a controversial thing. It was like a part of popular media. It was a part of cartoons and comics and TV shows and social media things where this woman in the spotlight had become the butt of everybody's joke. And then watching people get immediate amnesia when she passed and only talk about her as this beloved person that was I think one made me more cautious of what it means to treat people well while Mm -hmm. they're here but also it was just a reminder that y'all hate black women and it's like something that like we haven't learned from like not even a little bit so what about you best what's standing out um most pressing to me right now is I think becoming a mother shifted and informed so much in my politics and ethics. Um, I think I got pregnant when I was like 19 or 20, which to be fair, my mother had me in high school. Her mother had her first child in high school. So in my head, I was good and grown. <laughs> I was not good and grown. <laughs> I was not good and grown, but I thought I was. Um, and then I went through like a really messy divorce and was like unhoused for quite some time and had like just this series of catastrophes happening. And I think what I was like wholly unprepared for is the way that people, um, the lack of care that people take with Black women um, Mm. or Black folks who are giving birth and the ways in which the medical industry can be so callous. And I would love to say that that's something that I feel like has changed since I gave birth in 2008 till now, but it did not change. (laughs) Um, And even thinking about like my last labor, I was most mindful of, okay, I want to make it out of here. And if I just make it out of here, we can call this a wrap. Like I'm never doing this again. And I think it's so traumatizing in a lot of ways. And I think about it to to feel that way, right? For the, to be bringing somebody into the world. And that is the thing that is on your heart and on your mind. And I think it made me a lot more interested and invested in supporting reproductive justice and supporting folks' medical needs. It made me a lot more mindful of the different um, medical possibilities that are available to folks who want to have children. It made me a lot more precious over people who I know who are, you know, in the process of being pregnant or trying to have kids because there's so much care that's just not given and not just not given, but like refused. Right. So not like people mm. forget like it's an accident, but it's very intentional. Or even I think about like, I feel like something has been going around on Twitter recently is women talking about the things that happened to them 
when they gave birth that they didn't know what happened. And me making the connection that they don't know that that happened because it's something that we are deliberately shielded from versus something that no one just wants to talk about. And it very much like once I had a child and was like, oh my God, why didn't any of y'all tell me this? It felt like I was like jumped into a secret society or something. <laughs> um, and that makes me think often about the fact that there are just so many people who have been living with like this consistent grief and consistent trauma. That makes so much sense best. I feel like thinking about all of the things that have informed our ethic and I think by nature, our ethic and politic informs our writing. I'm super excited to talk to Mia today. So I'm going to get into this bio. Mia S. Willis is a Black queer poet, music producer. Ooh, I know that's right. Popular educator and cultural worker from Charlotte, North Carolina. Mia has received fellowships from the Cave Canem Foundation by Mason Baldwin, The Watering Hole, and Lambda Literary a two-time Best of the Net nominee. They are the author of Monster House and the 2018 winner of the Cave Canem Chatbook Prize. Let's get into it, Best. Yes. Hi, Mia. We would be honored if you would start us off with a poem. So the first poem I'm going to share with y'all is a poem that I wrote back in the day in 2019 uh, when I was living in Florida, which is a crazy place anyway, but uh, I'm excited to share this a little bit with you. On December 7th, 2019, Georgian performance artist David DeTuna entered the Art Basel Miami exhibition, removed an artwork valued at $120,000 from the gallery wall, and ate it. This is an ode to the hungry artist, the parable of the great banquet. Mere days after we paid our respects to Chairman Fred, we sat on the stoop slack-jawed as a man ate a $120,000 banana, shook our heads and mused that the hunger's gonna kill us first. 60-second science class in the self-checkout. Appetite, like energy, cannot be lost, only change its form, so when my stomach, I mean pockets, are empty, I bite the Armani-gloved hand that feeds me. Question. If the ancestors were sharecroppers living in Eden on credit, what was the price of the apple? Question, if we still have not tired of tilling the fields without tasting the fruit, what is the value of our heads? In the year of our Lord, 2019, Jesus walks into a brightly colored spectacle, peels forbidden yield, lets teeth break skin into bleeding, performs a miracle, then smiles as the centurions lead him away from shocked public. Peace so still, it shows the cruelty in starving, commands its witnesses to go forth, multiply. I had to be like, Ajanesh. <laughs> Brittany definitely has, because I was, I was, I was over here. I was about to hit you with the go off. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's wild. Like the fact that the, I mean, all the, all the art piece was, was like a banana taped to the wall. Like that was all it was. And like David DeTuna walks up to the banana and peels it and eats it. And he's like, you know, there, he's trying to make some sort of grand point about how they're like our houseless and unfed people outside of Art Basel, Miami and droves. But like, this is a $120,000 banana. But the follow-up to that story is that David DeTuna now makes NFTs for Dole Fruit Company. <gasps> so it's not really... Uh, <laughs> it, 
<laughs> he didn't really stand by the message. He sort of he uh, he used it and then he moved on. How so. quickly the game switches when the coin exactly. is involved. How quickly? Exactly. That that for me is like there. That's what separates the theory and the praxis of a revolutionary act. Like you you theorize that you were gonna you know upset a narrative, but then you actually didn't realize what the next step was. And so you ended up, you know, sucking yourself into hypercapitalism even even worse. Listen, because people love to say what they're going to do. And then when we get there, and, you know, people also includes me. I, too, have been that person who was like, I would never. And then I got there and was like, damn, look at me never. So I'm trying to figure out what NFT's Dole Fruit Company got. Is it yeah. Is it is it pictures of the Mandarin orange cup? Like what is going on? You know, I try I try not to trouble myself with thoughts like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> I truly do. I try not to trouble myself, but like, I mean, I, Dole is one of those companies where like, if you check out their supply chain, like the way it works, it's absolutely crazy. Like the pineapples are grown in Indonesia and then packaged in Colombia and then, you know, redistributed all over the world. Like, so, you know, it, Dole is weird. It's possible that he's like doing NFTs to sort of, uh, you know, with the fruit cups and whatnot, or it's also possible that he's trying to do some whole other revolutionary thing with it. So we'll see. Let's let's just hold our let's just uh, <laughs> see how that see how that unfolds. I love how you say I don't trouble myself with us. <laughs> try not to. You know, life is really short, and my brain, my mind is an attic, as you know Sherlock Holmes says. And there's there's finite space in here. I try not to trouble myself. That some stuff you can't even give the time to to occupy too much space. I have enough problems. Listen, <laughs> as my mama, I'm not going to let them worry me because they will if I let them. <laughs> so what's moving you these days, if if not the NFT problems <laughs> that we let in business? <laughs> what are you moved by? Oh, man, I'm moved by my communities these days. The pandemic really challenged me to connect with people intentionally. Um and make sure that I was creating art on purpose and creating art that had a purpose outside of my own sort of practice or as Baldwin would call it, finger exercise. You know, like I'm, I've been moved by like my, so my best friend in the world is Maya Williams. Congratulations Aww. to y'all on your graduation from Randolph. Love, Love to y'all. They are amazing. Um, OMG. That's my One best my friend. Like Maya and I went to college together. <laughs> we were besties. We went to college together. We were there all four years, like thick as thieves. And so I've been deeply moved, especially by the way that Maya has been bringing art in the last few years uh, to new contexts, to incarcerated folks, to uh, disabled folks, to traumatized people. Like I really, I've been really moved by that work and the fact that Maya understands that you can't just write the poem, that you have to bring the poem to the people who need it. Uh, and you have to to heal them uh, in the way that in the way that they're looking for. And so that I'm definitely greatly moved by. Uh, my other best friend is Asia Bryant Wilkerson, who <gasps> is a a poet and a sculptor and an all around brilliant individual. And so I'm so deeply, deeply inspired and moved by the work that she does. I love Asia. Asia wrote this Sestina once. Man, oh. My heart, I love Asia. She's incredible. She she pushes me. She pushes me to write what I mean. 
like to say what I mean and not apologize for it to say, you know, one of I, I tell her all the time that um, it, it for her, it's an older poem, but the pot calls the kettle black is one of my favorite poems that she's ever written because she wrote a knife <laughs> like she wrote, you know, like she wrote a blade on the page. And like, I'm so inspired by that. So um, I've been moved by my people. I've been moved by my community. Maya, Asia, Lindsay Young, who is doing some incredible work. Like there are just some, I'm so blessed and privileged to have this, this chosen family of queer people around me that are pushing me forward and challenging me every day to be better. I love knowing who people's best friends are because for me, I'm like, it paints such a full picture, right? Because now it's not just you, it's you and your folks. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I love when I see a bestie group and I'm like, ah, that makes lots of sense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All the pieces of the puzzle are, are cohesive. So that's really, really cool. I know you mentioned that like your relationship with writing shifted over the pandemic. And I would love if you would talk more about how that's been for you, whether it's shifted like in terms of form, in terms of practice, what's what's different on this not quite other side of of COVID? Well, so like for context, I was on tour when COVID sort of hit the US. I was I was in Seattle uh, on the Sister Spit 2020 tour. Um, and sort of the news was rolling in like, oh, you know, the, these cases, they're, they're getting higher and higher. And, and I, I, I really didn't know what to do with myself. Like I had, I had that tour kind of, that was my first West coast tour and I had that coming up and then that got canceled. And then some really big high paying gigs that I had got canceled. And so I really had to reevaluate my definition of success and like my definition of of progress in my career. Um, because for me, like I, I was, I always thought that like my, uh, Zenith would be that like, Oh, I pay bills with poetry money. Like that's how I do it is, is that, you know, I don't, I don't have a second job. This is the job, you know? And, and that was always what I was striving to do. But then when the pandemic hit us full force and sort of everything shut down for a while and we were all sort of sheltering in place. I realized that, you know, I, in order to have that life, I would have to be gone six months out of the year because I would have to tour. Uh, and then I would have to have at least one month of residency, which costs a whole bunch of money. And, then, you know, so like doing, I, I realized like, actually, that's not the life I really want. I was living really fast because I was feeling a lot of pressure to succeed in the sort of, you know, uh, manufactured ways. And, uh, and the pandemic really was the time for me to stop and listen to myself and say, like, is this really what you want? Do you, is this how you want people to hear you or feel you? Um, and, and you love Beyonce, but like, you can't do 96 cities, baby. Like, you ain't, <laughs> that ain't you, you know, like, that's just not who you are. I did, I did 15 cities in 2019, I think. And that was absolutely insane. Like I was, I was ill after that. Like I couldn't, I couldn't take care of myself. So um, I have been way more patient with myself and with the work as a result of this crisis. Um, I didn't force myself to write anything. Uh, if I wasn't really, really called to it, I stopped performing publicly. Um, I really just sort of retreated inward in the interest of figuring out like, but no, who are you though? Like not when other people are watching you, but like, who, who are you and what do you want to say? And how do you want to go about this, this journey of being a poet? Cause there's no right way to do it. 
And so that's that's really what uh, the pandemic awakened in me. It was like, you've been on the right path, right path, quote unquote, and been very successful. But like, what if you trusted yourself to just chase what you want out of it? Like what what you're looking for, a new audience rather than a check or like, you know, a, a challenging conversation rather than the, the dollar amount. Um, so I, I'm so slow now, y'all. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I write so slow. Like, being at Cave Condom this year was a real challenge for me. Like, writing every day, writing something new and like sharing it with people. Like, I, I'm moving so much slower, but with so much more intention because I, I realized that, you know, my poetry failed me in a crisis time because it was dependent on the capitalism that was collapsing around it. And, uh, and so I, I couldn't let my poetry fail me again. And I couldn't let my poetry fail anybody else that way again. So um, I, I'm slower, I'm more deliberate. Uh, I, I definitely have seen the value of revision. Shout out to Aria D. Matthews. <laughs> Listen, uh, for, like, like, seen, did you hear me? <laughs> like, an, an, uh, like her workshop on like classical revision is like, absolute brilliance like it's it's brilliance talking about catullus and talking about revision like who are you area come on um but uh era is right amazing. she's brilliant um but yeah like i think i think really the pandemic um changed my relationship to success changed my relationship to uh progress and growth in my career and it also took the pressure off me to put my first book out my first full-length book has been done for a while, but I was definitely trying to get it out as soon as possible after winning the Cave Condom Chatbook Prize. Like I was really putting a lot of pressure on myself. I was like, you got to strike when people are talking about you. You got to strike when the iron's hot. You know, let's get this book out right now, right now. And, you know, looking back on it, had it come out when when I wanted it to, you know, it, it probably wouldn't be the project that, that I'm proud of. Um, so I pulled a book in the pandemic, actually. <laughs> I, I pulled a... I pulled it from my publisher because I was not really getting the editorial support I needed, which was sort of on their end, but it just didn't feel ready and I didn't want to rush it. So I, I said, you know, let's, let's take a step back and make sure it's coming out at the right time because this, it does matter. It's important. I don't want to be too personal, but I'm really intrigued by what you said about moving more into your interior self and like stopping performance. Me and Ajane both started with SLAM and started in the performance world and moving over, I think, or whatever moving over means, because all of that's subjective, we know, right? But stopping performing and writing strictly in a more like interior way for yourself, more patient, more deliberate. What did you find yourself most surprised by during that process? I definitely didn't realize how much grief I was moving through. Um, so I, my oldest sister, Brandy, um, passed away in 2012, very suddenly. And I didn't really realize how much of that I was still moving through. She was 29 and I'm 26. And so, you know, the, I, once I started slowing down and, and writing more intentionally and being more patient, like I started to understand that that sense of running out of time, you know, obviously is a societally imposed one. Everybody feels like they're running out of time. But it also has a lot to do with that grief and a lot to do with the fact that I felt like I was running out of time because I'm getting closer and closer to my sister's age. And so it just, uh, it really enlightened me to the fact that I hadn't really been spending a lot of time listening to myself. I hadn't been spending a lot of time making space for me to feel my feelings. And I know that like sounds ridiculous, but like being in therapy has completely unlocked 
listen for me. Shout out, to therapy, right? <laughs> Shout out to therapy, right? Like everybody, everybody needs to talk to somebody, but, but it's completely unlocked for me. Like actually the reason you were running so hard, the reason that you were on tour for three months and off for three months and on for three months is because you didn't want every, you, you were trying to outrun your own end. You know, you're, you're trying to outrun it. And so it, it's luckily it was, I started taking poetry back as a meditative practice, um, kind of a, a way to spend time with myself, a way to listen to myself, which is what I really believe meditation is for me. And yeah, I was surprised to see how frequently I was writing about my sister, how frequently she was showing up. Like she shows up in, in my work, you know, in other places, but I was like, wow, like Brandy, Brandy really wants to speak here. Like she really wants me to talk to her. And I haven't, I haven't talked to her intentionally or acknowledged her intentionally in a while. I sort of put that away. But the very first poems I ever wrote were epistolary poems to her. Like, so, you know, I, I felt myself returning to that of like this, this act of patience and kindness and love that is writing poetry intentionally when it comes to you is actually an extension of, of that loving relationship and you shouldn't shy away from One of the things that um, I'm thinking about and I appreciate you talking about therapy and then also like poetry working as a meditative practice um, and also this idea of reassessing where poetry was becoming like a barrier or a space for you at the beginning of the pandemic because I feel like a lot of us had to almost reassess reassess ourselves and honestly the things that you're saying they sound radical in the way that we think about things because I think so many people are just like I I have to get that book out so the idea to like have had a book in progress and to get it pulled or to like make the decision make the conscious decision to pull it for your own ethics for your own self-care for your own just understanding what you deserve I'm wondering do you feel like your concern for who your work is arriving to has shifted from like other folks to yourself and like how is concern for audience? I, w- I think my answer is yes and no, in that I definitely, it allowed me to differentiate the poetry that I was writing for myself versus the poetry that I was writing for other people. Like I have a keener eye on what I do now. And and so like pe- the, the joke sometimes is like, not everything in the workshop has to go in the journal, right? Like, like not everything that you write has to get published. And I got a greater sense of that um, over the course of this time that like, I don't have to share everything. Uh, in fact, there are some poems that I wrote over the pandemic that no one will ever see but me because that's not the point. You know, I, I wrote the poem to feel the feeling. And now that I have felt the feeling, I don't necessarily need other people to see that or, or be spectators to that. So uh, it did sort of allow me to spirit away a little bit of my my poetry loves, sort of lock it up and sort of keep it just for me uh, in a new way. But I also felt just so driven by my audiences to speak and so driven by my audiences to write intentionally. I mean, you all, you all come, I mean, we're slamily, like, you know, this, yeah, like, I know the vibes. The, like when you write for scores, like you're going to war, like this is, this is your waging war against other folks with the art. And like when, when I moved from performance to you know more page poetry I definitely had to to stop competing and like and like oh. figure out you know what I was who am I competing against who is actually watching because slam your audience can be anybody but on the you know on the page you gotta 
lead people to to where you want them to go. So um, I think the answer is yes and no. Like I, I think the pandemic definitely gave me the awareness of the ex- the interior self and saying like you know there are poems that you can write for you and no one has to see them and they can just be your sweet beautiful poems. I have some Quansabas that like I love a lot that I haven't put out anywhere just because I like I, them can you, for me. Can you elaborate? What's a Quansaba? Is that what so? Yeah, a Kwansaba. So um, I discovered this poetry form years ago and start and tried to teach it in every form workshop that I could teach it in. But basically, it's a it's a poetry form that was created by Eugene Redmond uh, in '95, which is the year I was born. Which okay. is why I try to I try to do it not not to be me. Shout out to um, the '95 babies, gang gang. <laughs> right, we are the best. It uh, quite quite literally though, Kwansaba means first fruit in Swahili. And basically, it's it's created after the Ngozu Saba of Kwanzaa. So it's a praise poem. It's a, mm. a an African, a Black praise poem. And it's a septistic. So it's seven lines, seven words in each line, and no word exceeds seven letters. Mm. Interesting. So there's no rhyme scheme rule. There's no like concrete, you know, in terms of visual rules or anything like that. But those are the only ones. Seven lines, seven words in each line, no word exceeding seven letters. You would be surprised at how your joy responds to that container. Hmm. Like how your praise responds to that container. Because we're, we're so, you know, Black people, we're so boundless in the way that we experience praise and love and appreciation of one another. And so, like, when you try to funnel that down into a really specific uh, uh, form in the in the form of the Kansaba, like, you really get to the meat of what you want to say. Your words are so, so much more heightened uh, and, and important uh, in that form. That's why I love it. I literally just wrote that down because I'm about to go back and try. And <laughs> I'm literally about to go back and try this form. Mm-hmm. I was super excited when I was looking at some of your work because I saw you had also written a bop. And I was like, you better be doing a black form. <laughs> um, and I just, I, lo- I love the consistency of who you are. I also appreciate your comment about when you're writing for Slam, you're writing to go, like you're writing to go to war and you're writing with the preparation of this work is competing against another thing. And I don't think that's something, I've, I think I've thought about a lot of things about the transition out of performance but not about the transition out of I am not competing against my peers I'm like my work is now existing um in a larger conversation in a larger ecosystem as opposed to um as my as opposed to my work being competition um something that I'm really interested in and I'm thinking about this especially as you're bringing up these like black forms is the way your work confronts the concept of the ivy tower or of the ivory tower and its impact on ling- on our language on our politics on the way we assimilate and i was wondering if you could talk more about the process of like growing in your personal craft while also preserving the culture of your language word yeah I mean, so I think an important context here is that, like, I was an archaeologist uh, before. So, like, Ooh, I, interesting. that's what I was trained in is, yeah, I, I went to school for classical archaeology, uh, specifically Roman archaeology outside of Rome. So I did my field work in Bulgaria, actually, um, and got to see some incredible things. But my relationship to my language is is so conditioned by my experience as an archaeologist, like by my experience as someone who works in material culture. 
and language to me is a material culture. I don't like the fact that Boaz, uh, Franz Boaz separates, when he separates into the four fields of uh, anthropology, he separates archaeology and linguistics. And I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree that that's, that's right. Cause I do think language is a material culture. Uh, you build things with language. You can touch it. You can, you know, uh, feel it, you know, it is, uh, definitely there. But, um, I think when I started moving through these archaeological programs and, and, seeing the ways that we were talking about cultures that were long dead as though we really did know them, as though they really could speak to us. That's when I sort of started, I, I decided, you know, how do I want people to talk about me in the future? Do I want them to be able to talk in my voice? Do I want them to be able to, to speak in my grammar? You know, how, how do I want to be seen or read in the future? And I, I returned to poets like Sonia Sanchez, you know, and, and people who are writing in the dialect of their time, right? And, and trying to preserve that particular pattern of speech or way of speaking. And I was really fascinated just by the bricks of Black language uh, and the fact that we do have rules, we do have um, uh, bounds within the, the language that makes sense. You know, people, white people mess up the habitual B all the time. It'd be kicking their ass. Like, and I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. To me, it doesn't really, it doesn't really seem that hard, but again, because, you know, there are Africanisms in our language. Like, you know, I just, it, it, it feels like I have a duty to, to point out all the ways in which language connects us both materially and spiritually, because we'll, we will lose it. Um, the, the way that Latin becomes a dead language is because people stop speaking it and only write it. And it gets locked away from the people. It gets a lot, you know, it's, it's now the, the language of the papacy. And it's now, you know, it's like, it's this very kind of loftier language and, and given elevated to this pedestal when in Rome, everybody spoke Latin. Like, you know, like there might have been some slang, there might have been some dirty jokes or anything like that. But like everybody spoke you know, Latin, maybe with an accent or with a dialect or whatever. So to me, that's like the same thing of, of if we don't keep, if I don't keep writing about my language, if I don't keep writing about how I use it to love people, how I use it to hold them accountable, how I use it to water them, then that practice will also disappear in addition to the language, how, how you use the language disappears too. So I, I definitely feel it's a duty for me to keep writing about how my language works, to keep not decoding it for white people, but showing, you know, Black people, like, this is how our language works. It's not thrown together. It's not slapdash. It's not a, a degradation of other languages. But in fact, like, what we do with it makes it new. You know, what we do with it makes it revolutionary. So, yeah, I, I think that's my responsibility uh, as a poet particularly as a Black one, to talk to Black people about the way we actually exist, the way we actually talk, and about how society has conditioned the way we talk to each other. And I'm thinking particularly of, I have a poem, uh, a descriptive grammar about gender. And descriptive grammars uh, are supposed to tell you or explain to you how a word is used in the language. It's not supposed to define it for you, but it's supposed to explain like, here's how a word comes to mind, come, comes to exist. And um and blackness and gender, you know, are I, I love talking about that conversation about how blackness is in conversation with gender all the time. 
and the fact that uh, there are there is evidence of you know black uh, a gender identity or bi gender identity or transgender identity historically and also in the present, um, but that the way we talk to one another uh, actually shows our understanding of gender just the the way that we speak you know the the fact that boy b o y and boy b o i are pronounced the same they're homophones but the context changes them completely. Uh, depending on who you're talking to. So you, the fact that I can, t- like, I could say to you now, Ajane, like, you got me bent and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, and you know that you should probably give me my space. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, like, right. Or like, you know, like, I, I think regularly since, since I am from the South and like, since I, you know, grew up around Southern Black women, like I have a lot of phrases that I'll say in conversation that people yes. don't understand they have no clue what I'm talking about. They're like, bro, where did you even get that from? Like, I told somebody the other day that they look road hard and hung up with. <laughs> and they didn't know they didn't know what that meant. And I was like, oh, I'm oh, I'm sorry. Like, let me let me go back. Or like, you know, uh, my grandma would say, it's, it's so quiet out here. You could hear a rat pissing on cotton. I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, like, you know, so like though it's material culture because they come out of particular circumstances like you know my my family like I come from sharecroppers I come from eastern North Carolina tobacco fields and cotton so like a rat pissing on cotton is very real it's like a utilitarian like sound you know it's it doesn't come out of nowhere so um it's it's things like that that sort of awaken me to the fact that no language is material because it's a response to your your circumstances you're building a tool something to to capture uh, or render the the way that you're experiencing the world. To me, it's it's as versatile and as necessary as a hammer or anything else. I love that imagery. And also, we uh, you already know the vibes. <laughs> Our writing joke is that Brittany, <laughs> Brittany, be having these sayings that you would hear your, gra- but they're paired with very like modern, like. Ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. Like, Brittany, what are you talking about? Because like, <laughs> ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. My, <laughs> so my family lives in Detroit. My granny is from Georgia. My grandfather is from South Carolina. My mother has moved back to Alabama since. And I was raised in the matriarchy. So I tell people all the time, I'm not, I'm a granny's girl. I'm not a mama or a daddy's girl. I'm a granny's girl, right? So that's who... <laughs> I grew up sitting up under. So I say everything my granny say. <laughs> and quite frankly, so does my mother, right? So we have this language that's very Detroit, but also very Southern because that's what, you know, migration will do for you. So yes, I use their phrases in conversation all the time. And the number of times that Ajane has said to me, like, girl, what are you talking about? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you know what, what that mean? <laughs> my mama don't say <laughs> the one that you said your granny said, my mama said, you look like who shot John? <laughs> and I'm Ooh, like, yo, <laughs> yo, all the time. Used to hear that all the time. But also very much time. the rat pissing on cotton, very much. Um, yeah, people don't say that. Your mama don't say that. <laughs> like, no, my mama don't say that. And I think right. the thing is, is even if my people do say it, my grandmother says it. My like <laughs> the folks. <laughs> so I just be like, Brittany, the only person I've ever heard say that, like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Language is a shared thing, <laughs> but I also think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think our people speak in proverbs in so many ways. And I think that's a passed down like shared language for me. And sometimes it is the quickest way to explain a thing in that proverb, like in that. that I don't know. Ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. Because it's not. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it be that way sometimes. I'm thinking even when you're talking about like language as a tool, I think it's also a marker of context, right? Like even if we're thinking about our more modern formal slang, you know where somebody from by what they what they say. So it not only situates me in like your identity or your culture, it also situates me in your locale, like where you're from. Or depending on what you say, I'm like, okay, you might be from here, but I know your people are from this other space. <laughs> Um, I think I saw a Twitter, uh, a tweet once that said, Detroit niggas is just like Alabama niggas Mississippi and niggas in a <laughs> yes. coat on. Yeah, yeah. Show <laughs> mm-hmm. is. Show is. And that's it's so fast. Show is. Like, for real. Like, I, I definitely, I definitely can tell um, where different poets are from based on the way that they situate themselves uh, linguistically. So, Matt, it's a hot button situation for slam communities because quite frequently, you know, you got people using slang or words or things that are not necessarily there Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, that they, that they believe are universal black phrases, but in fact are like Southern black phrases or Midwestern black phrases. And like, you know, you're combining all of these different geographies in one poem and we're like, bro, but where are you from? Yeah. Cause that don't match. (laughs) When I hear somebody say what up though, I'm like, oh, you're from Detroit or you're trying to, uh, you, you trying to let me know you got people in Detroit or something, but if it's not one of those things, I'm like, wait, why why you say that? Right. So I, I definitely agree with you that it's a it's an indicator sort of of context and ge- geograph- uh, geographical context, excuse me. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. And that's part of the reason why I find it so important as a Southern Black writer specifically to capture that and say like, but actually the Southern Black experience isn't the Black experience. And I want to capture that uniquely, you know, and, and be true to that and honest to that, because that's where I come from people get real weird about the South in a way that I'm like, oh, that's so anti-Black. Y'all got to cut that out. <laughs> Y'all have got to cut that out. So I want to go back to something that you said kind of in our pre-conversation and hinted at a little bit earlier when we're thinking about breaking down or intentionally preserving language and honing in on audience and kind of abandoning like the performance of our art and moving into the interiority of it as a space of like anarchy. And as a space of uprooting capital. And I would love to hear you talk more about how you feel like Black anarchy shows up in our poetics, in our politics, in our culture, right? If we're thinking about language as like a contextual marker, right? How does Black anarchy coincide or show up there? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm one who... As an anti-capitalist, I feel like if you if you're anti-capitalism, you're anti-capitalism in all its forms, and that is what anarchism is uh, is is sort of abolishing those oppressive forms. So, like uh, legal and school systems, mass media, bureaucracy, like all of these things that that draw their power uh, from capitalism. And um, black people, particularly in the hip hop art form and in poetry, like we evolve ahead often of capitalism. So much so that capitalism has to catch up to us. So the example that I use frequently is hip hop because I, I feel like that's the best one. But actually, you know, without the blackout, right? Without this, without the New York City blackout, we don't get hip hop without people robbing stores, quite literally looting stores in New York City. We don't get hip hop. Like, so we had to do something illegal to make a new art form. And now we're out here playing music in public places where we're, we're 
reimagining what it means to uh, recontextualize old songs and put them into new songs. And, and now suddenly, you know, uh, bands like the Turtles, who don't even own their catalog, are all up in, you know, arms about the fact that you sampled them and they don't have any quote unquote legal recourse or anything like that. And so you're just worried about pushing the art forward. You don't really care about you know, these, these turtle guys, like you, you, you heard <laughs> a riff, guys. like, yeah, like you don't really care about that. You, you heard a riff, you heard a baseline, you heard drums, you heard something that spoke to you and you stole it. And isn't that like, to me, the greatest example of our survival, the fact that like you heard something that, that stayed with you, you heard a beat, you heard something and you said, no, no, I, I have to lay hands on it and make it new. I have to lay hands on it and and love it into something else. And so like that for me is is the anarchism of blackness in general. Um, Marquise B speaks about this uh, way more eloquently than I do. But, um, you know, the anarchism of blackness in and of itself. Zoe Samudzi, William C. Anderson. These are all people who speak about this. But like we are constantly... Uh, in opposition to capitalism in our culture. And we are constantly creating new ways to resist in our culture, whether or not that is, you know, uh, uh, whether or not that is like modifying street bikes and, like, and, and racing, you know, and racing down the strip, like, you know, or, or whatever, like whether it's uh, all, all these things we know are illegal, whether it's graffiti art, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, having pop-up cookouts or block parties, like we are so bent on being together and on surviving, on making it through it, that we are willing to sort of take, steal, spirit away, recontextualize almost anything uh, in order to um, in order to continue to build that culture forward and enrich the collective. I think that's fascinating. And it kind of brings us to our next question, which is about who informs your work. So we ask this of everybody, which is if you had to choose three people who of any genre, anything, who you were like, we would have to look at what they do in order to like understand how you got here or what you do, who would those people be? And when I say any genre, I mean, if you got a blunt roller and you like, you would have to look <laughs> at how this person artistically rolls these blunts in order to yes. understand how I wrote that bop, you Word. can list that person. Word. <laughs> Word. Um, I would say. People who want to understand my work, my dad, like, I, de- I mean, my dad is from Monmouth County, New Jersey. Shout out to Monmouth County. And he's a legend up there. Like, he's, he's a legend everywhere. But like, my, my dad is just um, someone who has taught me to appreciate, uh, to appreciate the fragility of life and also question as much authority as possible that tries to rip you away from that fragility or alienate you from it. And so that I, I definitely would say my dad first. Um, the other two are poets, I promise. But I gotta give love. I was to my about dad. to say, we've <laughs> been talking about poems. The other two, <laughs> the other two are poets. Like, but but my dad definitely like I I I learned so much about my philosophy of living from my father. My my father's um, attitude about living. I think the other person is James Baldwin. I feel and have felt kinship with James Baldwin for 
years since I was in high school uh, and and hadn't come out yet and was still, you know, little little baby gay Mia with the braces and like, Aww. you know, not not really uh not really sure of myself yet. And and Jimmy was the one to sort of say to me, like, but nah, like you got it though. Like, like you, you, you know who you are. And so you just gotta live through it. You just gotta mm-hmm. live to see who you're gonna be. Uh, and it's going to be worth it. So I, I think James James Baldwin taught me how to write about hope without sacrificing the stakes, how to write about joy without sacrificing the stakes, and keeping how to keep my people close uh, in in text. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Sonny's Blues and how he talks about mm-hmm. like the frustration of coaxing music from an instrument and like how that that must be what writing is like, you know, that must be, you know, like you're, you're so, you're so like intent on getting the right notes out of the piano and, and how that is a a really great analog for poetry. So um, definitely James Baldwin, I, I think. And then my last person would probably be June Jordan. Um, I think of her often and I re I return to her often because she had such a great understanding of the politics of her moment and how to create a revolutionary poem. Um, her praxis was just, I mean, her George Washington Carver poem, like gives me chills and like, it's a persona poem. Like you're, you know, you're not, it's, it can be, uh, it can read a little impenetrable to people who are not familiar with what she's trying to do, but you know, the, the way that she takes uh, a well-known story or a well-understood narrative and sort of subverts it and creates a new context for it um, is is really what I strive for my work to to point out the fallacies, to point out the cracks in this reality uh, and to say, but like, aren't we still here? Like, isn't that, isn't that dope? You know, <laughs> like, like, like we, it's, it's all um, cracking around us and crackling around us, but she was able to sort of take our hands and say, but, but we are here, you know, this is the eye of the storm and we have a duty to report from the eye, uh, what it is that we see. So yeah, those three, dad, Jimmy and June, that'd be a heck of a dinner party. I was going to say, listen, <laughs> yeah. love that. <laughs> be a heck of a dinner party. <laughs> usually, usually fun fact, when people ask me, like, if you could have dinner with, any however many people alive or dead like who would you choose usually my dad is in there and so whenever Mm -hmm. I'm nervous and like I'll clam up at the table because I'm like oh my god it's Nina Simone or Beyonce or whoever you know at the table I can rely on my dad to say so Nina I love this album of yours and you know you should we should talk about like he he's that guy who like wants you to have the experience of the conversation and being included even if you feel like timid or even if you feel like you shouldn't step forward. And so like, I, I know that I would get more out of the conversation and feel more comfortable if my dad was there. I, this is so wholesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is the content that we come for. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad I could give the people what they want. You and, and are giving. <laughs> We're going to take this time and take a break. You know what I'm saying? Word. Do whatever you need to do. It's the bathroom, drink some water, whatever. We'll come back So today we're going to play a game called This Versus That. <gasps> yes. And This Versus ready. That is a game where we pit two things against each other and we ask you to tell us who would win in a fight and why. 
So essentially, you got to tell us who got the hands, who going to yes, win, okay. <laughs> and why they have them, right? Like, walk us through your logic. All right, you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. The habitual B is in one corner. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Versus Black colloquial proverbs. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I wish you could see Mia's face right now. This feels like a trap to me. Um, okay, y'all, y'all gave me a trick question right out the gate. Okay, <laughs> um, okay. all right. So I'm gonna ta- I'm gonna have to talk it out, like Pat Sajak says. Okay, let's talk it out. So I'm gonna have to talk it out. So okay, so the habitual B for me, like when I imagine that individual personified, like that's somebody who eats walk-in tacos with flaming hot Doritos. <laughs> like that's somebody who like. You know, that's somebody who's a little dangerous, like someone who's someone who like has spikes on their clothing, like intentionally in 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 2022. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you know, like like. And, and so that person to me, you're right. Like that person is used to being misunderstood. That person is used to being pigeonholed in places they don't need to be. So like they know how to fight. The habitual bee has hands that I know. I. I do know. The the habitual B also in my mind has an undercut. So I don't know if that's important or not, but, but <laughs> an, an undercut for the habitual B. But but black proverbs, I, I'm, I feel I feel too much love when I think about them. And not to say that they're soft, but I feel too much tenderness like in black proverbs because it's about wisdom. It's about like sharing wisdom. And sometimes you can impart wisdom with hands. I respect that. Like mm. I do think that's possible. But I don't think hands are the best way to impart wisdom. And so I think I'm going to have to go with the habitual B. She seems she seems dangerous. She seems like I wouldn't want to run up on her in the dark. <laughs> Interesting. I love these personas. I also love the idea that hands can impart wisdom because, you know, a lesson can be learned. Look, look <laughs> what, what I tell people all the time, I say it all the time. And and I, it's, a, it's a quote from Fight Club. Like, how much can you know about yourself if you ain't never been in a fight? <laughs> Very little. <laughs> how much do you know about yourself? Like, you 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 learn a lot about yourself real fast when, when <laughs> the fists start flying, okay? <laughs> okay. Okay, but you think the habitual bee got it? I think the habitual bee got it, yeah. All right. Okay, you have it here, folks. <laughs> The habitual B got them hands and that undercut. Period. Got it. Be careful. <laughs> Tiptoe. Okay. So the plot twist about winning the game is that we win because <laughs> you get to read us another poem and we get to enjoy it. Um, so that is how. Okay, that's fair. We, we close this whole thing up. So I would, I would love. Um, to celebrate our win personally um, <laughs> by asking you to honor us with one more poem. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, I wrote a poem uh, in 2020. It was one of the only ones I wrote. It is uh, a tattered flag. Uh, so it is a poetry form, a visual poetry form that I sort of created while I was at the Dream Yard Radical Poetry Consortium, uh, learning from amazing people like Camilla Aisha Moon, uh, may she be resting peacefully, uh, and, and Denise Froman, um, Nate Marshall, these incredible minds. Um, but they challenged me uh, really to sort of create a visual poetry form that I felt really pushed my art forward. So I created the Tattered Flag, which is two stories of liberation told simultaneously. And uh, so this poem is called Juneteenth. 
It's a tattered flag. Small ordinary acts can be the portals through which meaning is made. Denise Froman. The man asks, what do you know about freedom? So I tell him how I came out to my grandmother. Say I'm more intriguing than the violence done to me. And then I tell him how I wish I could be honest with my mother about my credit history or anything that means anything at all. And I explain how I talk to, about my father more than I talk to him because what surprise could a raindrop ever bring the ocean? And I explain how I never wonder if my partner loves me when there are biscuits in the house. Only when the man turns to walk away do I approach the truth is that I was born under a North Carolina wind bloated with acid, where women forge brave lacquered armor of constraint, scabbards full of toil, slack and useless simplicity clearing loose soil from the excavation, blood spent so lavishly on an empty landscape, in my house, in my mother's house, in my mother's mother's house, a slapdash driftwood body, charybdis waves, guileful, tempestuous. I taught myself to read the gusts by pricking my ears to their howl. Thus far, the only transliteration that feels this sale of billowing skin. When I say all the black folks here are smiling, I mean humans are the only species for which bearing teeth is a sign of benevolence. I mean, ain't it funny how enamel ain't bulletproof, but we crouch behind it anyway. When I say all the black folks here are smiling, I mean all the black folks here are alive and as soft as water and eager to stay. I, if I could, I would throw something at you. <laughs> <laughs> That's would, high praise. That's high praise. I would just... Yes. Look Take your shoe off. Water yeah, I hear you. The title of something. It could. If you ever... <laughs> You know, that's definitely a title. Yo, I feel you. I, I'm going to file that away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for allowing us to interview you and being so generous with your time and with your brilliance. We so appreciate it. Grateful as hell. I think my favorite part of that interview is listening to the way that Mia talks about language. Yes. As both like this material thing and also about proverbs and their timelessness. And it really just has me thinking about the way that like Black language is both so wildly consistent, but then also so very like flexible and ever-changing. I think my favorite part is hearing Mia talk about reimagining or aligning their values mm -hmm. in regards to their art and determining what is important. I don't know. I just feel like I feel like so much of getting older has been reconciling what I thought was important with what's actually important. Yeah. I don't know. That that really struck with me and how that then shifts or shapes my dreams as I get older. So hearing mm. talk Who to best cut it out for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're about to have me thinking too deep over here. Cut it. Oh. <laughs> I don't want another thing to shift. Okay. I have no time for any more shifting. <laughs> Best, I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to you. I mean, just buckle up, Buttercup, because we in this. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in this vein, I think I want to ask you what's, what's a myth 
that you believed about your writing that has been proven untrue the deeper you move into like this literary landscape writing world? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think the thing that's most true is that I don't think I believe that I could sustain a writing practice and sustain a life that centered me being a writer um, in the way that it does now. So I think before when I approached writing, it wasn't, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't invested because I very much was. But I think that the stakes in some ways felt lower because I think I convinced myself that it was like going to be a hobby or that it had to be this thing that I used to do that I kind of was still dabbling in. Um, but I wouldn't have called it the thing that I do. Right? Like if people ask what I did, I, like I'm a teacher and I'm a mom, but I wouldn't have put writer there and I certainly wouldn't have put writer first. And then I think the more that I, the more that I continue to write, the more that I continue to be with community, I think doing that helped me consider new possibilities, I think, and gave me, I don't know, I think gave me a vision and a language for what could be possible. I think watching other poets who have children and who have like very full lives thriving and, you know, said industry was also really instrumental towards me being like, oh no, actually you can do this. And I think even more than like, you can do this. I think I looked up one day and was like, oh, this is what you do. <laughs> like maybe you are not trying to be a writer or, um, you know, technically I'm a writer, but I really don't get a chance to write all that much. I was like, oh no, this is really, this is your career. And this is in fact the thing that you do. And more than that, like the person that you are. Um, yeah. So that's, that's different. What about you, best face? Y'all should see the way she looks. Let me tell at me. you, I, I wish if if I could translate looks through this microphone. Ooh. You've seen me through a lot of errors, best. The number of times Ajene has been like, number of times I've been like, best. Can you believe that I got into that residency? And she's like, yeah. What are you talking about? I'm like, wow. They read my poems and they like them. It's just like, cause you're a poet. Like, what are you talking about? So, cause they and they and the poems been fire, and that's the real tea. That's what folks gotta understand. I'm not. That's what folks gotta been a writer, been writing. Best, what's what's your myth? (laughs) Please and thank you. (laughs) I think I think my myth is has been coming to understand myself not as like a solitary voice. I think Mm -hmm. when I was younger, especially because I came into writing so young, I like believe, I don't know if I had a, um, I don't know if that it was a theory formed in my mind, but I know I believed that I was like this solitary voice in a space. Like it was Mm -hmm. me and my art and I read other poets and that was them and their art. And when I write now and when I think about my work now, I'm always thinking about the collective voice. I'm thinking about how this voice is connected to this voice over here that's still alive. Like I look at some of the work I was writing even in college and I'm like, baby, you ain't even read James Baldwin, but you're referencing him. Like you don't even know, you ain't never even read (laughs) the fire next time, but you're right. You don't even know it. And I just don't think, I think I, I have, I don't see the place of stuttering, of studying both what's happening in contemporary, in the contemporary landscape and like the folks who have come before us as Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm studying because like, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. But I'm like, 
it's it's all a collective voice. It's all a collective chat. There is no individual voice. There is no individual idea. There is no something that just came into my brain. Yeah. There is all of these folks, some people who aren't even writers, who are a part of this collective voice. Um, and so I just don't think I see myself as an individual anymore and not in like a weird identity way but yeah does that make sense am i making sense or i'm sounding wild (laughs) no you're not sounding wild that makes perfect sense um i think it points to the question that we love to ask folks right who informs you so deeply that other people have to study them yes and i think you know i'm you know you know i'm a church girl so it'd be real sad i'm a pentecostal girl so it'd be real spiritual because i also (laughs) think like it's like who would i have to know but also like again i stand by that there were voices that i was in communication with by way of the spirit before I even knew, you know, before I even knew or came into, you know, before I even came into contact with them um, in my study. So yeah, that's it. That's my heart. That answer, best face. Is there anybody you want to thank today? During my last labor, there was this amazing black midwife who ended up delivering my son. And I don't know where she is in the world right now, but that woman was absolutely like an angel. I was definitely on like day two or three of like active labor. It was convinced that they was finna start doing strange stuff to me. <laughs> and she came in on like the middle of the night shift. It was like, you would have had his baby tonight. And I was like, yes. And she was like, okay, do everything I say. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And sure enough, like three hours before her shift was over. So she was ahead of time. Like she had my back. And this was during, this was September of 2020. So I don't even think that I have like stopped to process how terrifying that time was for real. And I'm not about to do it now either. (laughs) But I just remember feeling so, so afraid. And things were like so much more complicated than they had ever been both with my body and with the state of health. And I was in there with just one person because it was September of 2020. And that lady, listen... She did what had to be done. So thank you to her. I love that. This was with the most recent one, right? That one that she was FaceTiming me for in the middle of the night. (laughs) (laughs) We had to make sure everything was good, baby. Okay. I want to let the people know. I don't care. I'm in another state. I'm watching. Thought she was going to bully the nurses via the phone. (laughs) Who are you thinking today, Bess? So I'm going to think she's a TikToker. She might never hear this. I do not know her in real life, Um, but her name is Alexis Nicole and she lives in Ohio and Mm -hmm. she's a black forager Mm. and she's so fascinating and her and a handful of other black girls have opened like my mind, heart to thinking about my ethics and practice around environmental justice Mm. and and you know listener no judgment but i think like the idea is like black people you know we don't really mess with nature and i i just dawned on me that that could impact our relationship to environmental justice the black environmental justice baddies are out here and so i want to thank her and the other black girls on tiktok doing the environmental justice work and educating us Yes. They found us connecting on with no uh with no toxins. I said I know that's right. Oh well, wait a minute. I'm I'm gonna get that from you. <laughs> I'm gonna get that from you later. Don't I got forget. you. Don't let me forget. <laughs>
Okay, we would also love to give thank yous to Danny and the staff at Bravo Ocean Studios, the Poetry Foundation, Itzel Blancas, Yadami Noriega, Elon Sloan, Sim Pim, and Andy Productions. Please like, rate, and subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And on that note, until next time, folks. Bye! <laughs> <laughs>